We're starting today by reviewing just a bit to see how much you remember. Uh, it, it's always good to have a little review. We're not going to have a large one, but just a brief one. Uh, who, what was Jonah, what does Jonah's name mean? Something I didn't tell you. <laughs> good. Got your attention. It means dove. Correct. Somebody say it on the bear. It means dove. All right, so that was a little little tricky question to get us awake. It was in the notes. If we Probably it was. I, I wouldn't even doubt that I, I would put it there. And uh, beyond that, we find that Jonah was a, uh, a disobedient and reluctant prophet at this point. Had he always been that kind of a prophet? How do we know? But he had not always been a prophet of that nature. Disobeying God and reluctant to do what God wanted. Where done. he's listed in Kings, he's listed Pardon in me? Where he's listed in Kings, he's listed All right, in so he's listed in Kings, and we have the passages quoted here, uh, that he's just normally working with the king as any prophet would. Very good. Now, he, uh, he does become reluctant instantly upon the orders that he gets. And he heads for a place named Tarshish. What does that mean? Translated. Uh, no problem. Means, means smelted. <laughs> what? He said no problem. That's not, that's not it. No, it's smelted. Smelting place, right. Exactly. Somebody remembered. Who was that? Was that Joe? Okay, place. And what the, what in how would that have gotten a name such as that? The, the uh, minerals, the iron, and other minerals that they mined there and, and melted them. That's down. very true. Uh, who who is the they? The Phoenicians. Yes, Phoenician sailors. The Phoenician sailors, and they were stationed not only up in Phoenicia but also at another place of significance in this book. A place which was the only yeah. seaport that the Palestinians had. Joppa. Joppa. By the way, there was a thought question left in there that if you read over your notes, you might want to take a look at sometime, whether Peter and his experience at Joppa in any way reflects or is parallel to or is of interest in interpreting what happened to Jonah at Joppa. So just a thought question that might you might want to uh, uh, let rattle around in your head someday and uh, think about as you read about Peter's experience at Joppa. All right. Uh, Joppa, Tarshish. Uh, where was Tarshish? coast of Spain. Well, uh, on the Atlantic coast or? The Mediterranean coast. Uh, sort of on the South Atlantic coast, uh, shading over in toward uh, the Mediterranean, about that area, which is the uh, Spanish Riviera. Uh, very nice area. 
where the Phoenicians had set up a colony. All right, so we know where Tarshish was, but in location, with reference to Nineveh, what would you say about Tarshish? If you were going to describe uh, the commission and then realize that he gets on a boat headed toward Tarshish, what would you say? As far away in the opposite direction as you could get. Absolutely. Nineveh is east and Tarshish is west and uh, near where the two meet in those days. All right, so uh, we have Jonah then <coughs> getting on the ship at Tarshish. And first thing you know, there's, there's a huge storm in which... The sailors on the boats, seasoned sailors, no doubt, because that was a long trip and a dangerous one across the entire Mediterranean. These were seasoned sailors who were in a fairly good-sized ship for those days, and they um, were afraid, very, very much afraid, and began to cry out to their gods for help in their difficulty. Where is uh, Jonah? Sleeping. Why in the world would you think he would be sleeping? I mean, we don't know, but do you have any thoughts that might possibly? Jet lag. It's all right if you don't. I mean, it's early in the morning. Pardon me? Jet lag. Who, who said it? What did you say? Jet lag. Jet lag. Well, yeah, okay. Not exactly jet lag. Uh, Besides, going west is the better way. Going east is the tough way. (laughs) So, probably after a long trip of some sort, maybe even on foot, going from wherever he was to uh, Joppa, down in Joppa, and so he's very tired and asleep, and uh, they wake him up, and they say, look, you pray to your God along with the rest of us. We're praying to our God. Somebody's got to find some some God that's going to help us. And uh, so he's the, the the commander of the boat fusses at him about this, and uh, eventually they get to discussing this matter a bit. And what what comes out of that discussion? What what do we see comes from the discussion itself? What what does the discussion develop? He asked him where he's from. Pardon me? He asked him where he's from, what kind of person he is, where he's going, that kind He of had thing. told them that he was fleeing from, from God, trying to, and uh, uh, they uh, they uh, say, well, go ahead and pray and so forth. But eventually, uh, before before they do all that, they did one thing. They threw all the cargo over. Yeah, they did. That's true. That's true. They did something else. They... Uh, Back. Pardon me? They cast lots, and that fell on, those lots fell on Jonah. He was, as we said, the uh, one who won the lottery. All right, so um, then the lottery uh, is over. Jonah is the guy who's the culprit, and now what do we do? What happens next? Jonah says, Chuck me. I'm part of the cargo today, so 
throw me overboard. And uh, the sailors immediately do so, correct? No. No? no. What happens? They, they try to row in the boat. <laughs> that they start rowing the boat harder and say we, we don't want to be held guilty of throwing somebody overboard. And even when finally they can't get any results, the storm just rages worse and worse. And they decide we better throw him overboard. And he says, come on, do it. And uh, they do. What do they say then? Pray to God. What? They pray to God. They pray to God and they ask that they not be held guilty for throwing him overboard. And they do kind of talk as if they have some understanding of who this God is. Maybe even became converted as to what Jonah did with them at that point. All right. So Jonah is sinking down into the Mediterranean and seaweed is wrapping around his head and the, the, the currents are rushing over him and he's headed toward the bottoms of the mountains, as it says, and the bottom of the place. And uh, uh, what does he conclude as he goes down? Dying. Pardon me? He's dying. He's dying. Yeah, he's dying. He, but how does he put that? Interesting way. Pardon me? Yeah, he's going to Sheol. He, he's, he's going to Sheol and the bars, the doors are going to be locked on him. In other words, it looks like this is the final curtain, or however you want to put it. No more... No more hope left. But just at that moment, it seems, uh, something happens. God heard his cry. Pardon me? God heard his cry. That's true, and uh, so he just let him nope. cry and drown. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> sent him a streamlined caravan. All right. <laughs> sent him a fish. Yep. And uh, Jonah survives in the fish. For however long it took, we don't know how far they were out on the Mediterranean before all this took place. A little while, because he was asleep for a while, and they had to argue all this, and they threw cargo everywhere. So, you know, it all took a little while. They, they got some distance out. And uh, so, the next thing you know, uh, he's chucked up on the land. And there he is. Now what happened? Very same message. <laughs> Which means, uh, among other things, that he could have saved himself a lot of trouble. Could have saved himself a lot of heartache and, and suffering uh, had he obeyed the first time. Now he obeys. So everything's okay. He's really excited. He wants to go and... Uh, <laughs> Do the job this time. They didn't do right the first job time. Absolutely not. Reluctantly he goes. And that's where we are today. <clears throat> so he has unfinished work to do and there's more to learn on his part as well. Now, what what do we discover later on? We, we skipped ahead. We really went over to the fourth chapter and looked at a verse there that said, 
why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? He did not want them to be saved. He knew God was a God of mercy, God who's slow to anger and who had great grace. And that his grace probably was going to be, or at least it could very likely be, shed out on this this nation when he preaches the message. And that's the last thing he wanted to happen. Why? We don't know, surely, do we? We don't know anything, surely, uh, about such matters, but we're speculating because of the great city that whose whose uh, whose uh, stench had come up before God, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and He was sending Jonah at that point, uh, and we know from Nahum that it was a certain kind of city. It was called the bloody city. So. We surmise that he did not want to go because this capital of Assyria was the place that was plotting against his people and about to descend down upon the Hebrews. And uh, so he probably despised and hated these very vicious people and did not want them to be saved. That's our surmise. And... He so was so bitter about this, he tells us that's why he would rather have died than to go. And uh, so probably when he was thrown overboard, it was not something that was all that atrocious as far as he was concerned. All right, I'll get out of it that way if I can't get out of it any other. But it didn't work like that. He didn't expect the fish to give him a ride, but he got it. And he's back on land. And the very same commission. Now, what happens after that? Well, like in other times, uh, we see that God is at work. Uh, God is at work in his world, not just creating his world and then walking off from it like a deist would think, but uh, God is at work in his world Doing what? Appointing things. He appoints the storm. He appoints the fish. He is involved in the work of providence. Providence. Right. And providence is what we stressed was the big point of this book. How God is in control of his world. And it has not gotten out of control. How important it is for us to know that. How important in a day like ours when it seems to some people like the only place left is New Zealand. <laughs> and uh, so it isn't the only place left. And things aren't hopeless. And even if they are in some ways God is still in control and he is working out his purposes and they are not just purposes that he planned long ago and somehow went haywire, but he is there when things are happening, seeing that they do take place. That's providence. 
difference between sovereignty and providence was asked. And what was that difference? Sovereignty means God controls it all. He is one who planned it all. But he not only plans it all, he works his plan. He plans his work, he works his plan. And when he works his plan, that is providence. He's not an absent God. He's a very present God. Not just in time of trouble, but at all times. He's a very present God. And so he is present here with Jonah, and he's telling Jonah, you get up, and you go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach the preaching that I bid you to preach. Very important words. Why do you think those words are so important that occur both times? Preach the preaching that I bid you preach. So he doesn't preach anything from his own consciousness. He's preaching God's word, not something that he is feels comfortable with. All kinds of preachers have problems getting down to the point where they preach what God really wants them to preach. Some of them don't preach what God wants them to preach because they have pet theories and pet ideas and pet subjects and the only thing they ever preach about is that subject. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the guy who preached about the uh, Roman Catholic Church every time he got up. Uh, and the, the elders eventually got tired of hearing about the Roman Catholic Church he was preaching against every time he got up. And they said to him, look what you... Please, please preach on Genesis 1-1. They thought they'd get him then. And so he uh, got up the next week and he said, uh, I am today going to preach on Genesis 1-1. And it falls, the text falls naturally into two divisions. What God did create, the heavens and the earth, and what God did not create, the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> Well, there are preachers like that who get stuck on a subject and that's all they want to preach about. Uh, there are preachers also who uh, know what they ought to preach about because they've read the passage, but there's Mr. Jones down there in the fifth row who always looks askance at them and in particular, if they were to get on his favorite subject, or maybe the, we ought to say least favorite subject, and if he were to preach on that subject, he'd know he would hear from Mr. Jones, who would spread it all over the congregation, and this preacher side again, and he was wrong, and so forth, and so on. And so he avoids preaching about that passage because of the response he's going to get from Mr. Jones, or from Mrs. Green. And there are preachers who did that. And there are preachers who won't preach on subjects because they know that they themselves have that problem. And if they were to preach on that subject, they might have to first get a few things straight down in their own lives before they ever preached on that subject. But it doesn't matter what it is that's keeping a preacher from preaching what God wants to preach, he'd better preach what God wants to preach if he's going to preach at all 
because that's what God says here. You preach the preaching that I bid you to preach. And those are explicit words, very clear. And somewhere along the line, we know what those words were. What were they? We know that God must have told him somewhere exactly what those words were. Yet 40 days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. All right. So, we see he goes to the city of Nineveh, this great city. And the people immediately repent. I mean, he walks through the city for three days, preaching wherever he goes, talking to people, yet 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Hey, yet 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Hey, you ever hear this now? I've got a new news for you. Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Yeah, Unbelievable response, the greatest sermon, the greatest sermon results ever <laughs> from any sermon, and the preacher's furious over it. I mean, it's, it's a sheer anomaly as you look at it, isn't it? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. wonder why those people responded so wholeheartedly. It doesn't say in so many words, but from the rest of the book, we certainly could get an idea. Six times in the book, we found that God appointed something. God was in charge. And I can't believe that those people repented readily on their own. I believe God moved them to repent that God was at work in some way that we're not really sure about, but he worked in their hearts in such a way that the Spirit of God moved them to repentance. Now, he may have used some natural causes to bring them to this place where they were ready for that. Those things often happen as we see. God used the fish. God's going to use a plant. He's going to use a worm. He uses the sun. He uses rain storm and all that sort of thing he uses natural causes and we know some things that were going on around that time from archaeology we know that there had been a recent solar eclipse which um, was an omen to a lot of people in those days who didn't know better they, they were very very much concerned when, it was, when the sun disappeared and uh, also even perhaps more Significant was that there had been a seven-year-long famine. And it was followed by minor rebellions at that point. Upset in the... People upset in the city who were very much concerned over this famine and how it was being treated and so forth. And archaeologists tell us, tells us about it. Remember we had... Uh, there were 100,000 cuneiform tablets in that library, half of which are in the British Museum today, and uh, we could read about all this stuff. Once they were able to decipher the uh, tablets, the, the language, cuneiform language. So we know those things were going on around this time, and they, in God's providence, possibly, he may have used some of these things to ready those people to the place where they were concerned enough, and the Spirit of God moved their hearts to repent. When the repentance took place, how would you describe it? Uh, 
I mean, we can read it. Maybe that's what we ought to do. But it's it's kind of interesting to talk about. But let let's just let's re read it anyway. Then the word of the Lord, chapter three, came to Jonah second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Uh, not doing so, of course, uh, happily, but reluctantly, but did it. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk, walk through the city. It would take you three days to walk from one side to the other. And the, the streets were winding and twisting, kind of like Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, or Charlotte, North Carolina. I mean, those two places, I have an awful time finding my way. Anyway, uh, so it, it would take time to get through that city, you know, and, and preach as well, and, and probably a few people stop you and say, what are you talking about? Tell me a little more. And he said, I'm in a hurry, but I'll tell you this, guys better repent because 40 days is going to be overthrown otherwise. So 40 days then it will be overthrown. The men of Nineveh believed in God. Interesting, it doesn't say believe God, but believed in God. That It sounds more like they really believed in the true God that Jonah was proclaiming and not only what he was saying, but that this God was, was right. That it would be overthrown if they did not repent. So they proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth. What was sackcloth? Pardon me? Cheap clothes. Cheap clothes. It was, it was uh, uh, made of hair, yeah, and black. Uh, you read, uh, for example, in Ezekiel that uh, the night was as black as sackcloth. Uh, the day it turned as black as sackcloth. Right, it was, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, itchy. <laughs> so, um, all right, they uh, dressed in sackcloth, which was a sign of humility. Here's the king taking his robe off, got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He even sat in ashes. Sometimes they threw the ashes on their heads. Uh, ashes were, I guess, pretty much a symbol of uh, what could happen to you if you didn't, to you and to your city. And so uh, here they are. And so he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. Interesting, uh, and his nobles. Uh, there's some archaeological understanding of that, that the king was not in absolute authority at that point and that it was kind of a, uh, more of a, uh, an order of things where the nobles and he in a congeniality work together. No man or beast, here's the, here's the, the uh, order, no man or beast, or beast, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Uh, for 40 days? Is that what he's talking about? No. No. Couldn't have been for 40 days, could it? No. How long was it, you think? Well, it wouldn't have been more than three days. Probably for a very short period of time, right. You can't go without water for three days. No, you can't. You can't, right. 
And so we we uh, we postulate that it was brief enough, but long enough that it was suffering of a sort that they were willing to undergo in order to prove that they were repentant. Now it could have all been outward, could have all been just going through the ritual. But uh, let's go on and see. Uh, it says that furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Can you imagine cows covered with sackcloth? And your, your cats and dogs with sackcloth on them and so on. It took a little while to do that, so it must have been at least three days uh, or something close to that to get all these animals taken care of. Even get the message out to everybody took a while because it was such a big city you know when um, uh, Babylon was overthrown it took two days for people on the other on one end of Babylon to even know that the city had been taken by uh, the Medo-Persians and so it took a while for word to get around I mean there were no, no cell phones or anything else and the place was spread out and remember this place was 30 about 30 miles of suburbs stretching down the Tigris River uh, as well as the, the city proper and uh, it took him three days to walk through it. So um, it, it must take a little while. And so each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence that he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Each man must turn from his equal evil ways and the violence that he is doing. That was not a call just to go through the ritual, was it? It was not just a, an, an order to uh, put the sackcloth on, sit in the ashes, pray a little bit, that sort of thing, but you better get your lives in shape. Things have got to change around here. And uh, we're in trouble. So we've had better do the right thing here. So, God saw their actions, their actions, not, you know, that they had turned from their evil ways. They actually did stop doing some of the things they were doing. So, God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. All right. Did God's prophecy fail? No. Well, prophecy was 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That prophecy failed? A serious problem. Here's a prophecy and God changes his mind. He relents. Now, we know he didn't actually change his mind. That's anthropomorphic language. I mean, from all eternity he had planned to relent. But still, he gave the prophecy, 40 days it's going to be overthrown. And sure enough, at 40 days it was not overthrown. Matter of fact, decided it wasn't going to be overthrown. So there. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? That's an important thing for us to understand something about. Because we have other prophecies in the Bible that really did not get fulfilled as they were 
said they as it was said they would be fulfilled, but God would change his mind. There was the understanding that it was Who's talking? Okay. Sorry. There was the understanding that that prophecy was contingent upon um, their response to the message. There was? Well, I mean, I, I'm just hypothesizing that it Well, let's not hypothesize it. No, let's no, let, no. let's decide whether that's true or not because that's a very important and interesting observation. We can't just pass that by by, uh, you know, let it, let it hang in the middle of the air. We've got to talk about that a little bit, yeah. Well, in the fact that Jonah knew, Jonah was confident that if he proclaimed the word yeah. that they would repent. He was pretty repent. confident of that, he says, uh, though he did sit for, for 40 days, sat him out to make sure that, he was hoping at least it would happen. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but God is slow to anger and, and all that, but they're, the Ninevites were a lousy people, and uh, by this time you'd think maybe they they were in a position like Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. Is there anything that tells us anywhere in Scripture that prophecies may not be fulfilled. Well, even just like Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. God said, if you find ten faithful people, I'll, you know, one. All right, that's good. That's good. Pardon me? Deuteronomy. If you do these things, this will happen. If you don't do these things, that will happen. That has to do with the Israelites, certainly, and the curses and the... Uh, the blessings, and the, you know, and also Mount Gerizim and Ebal later on, and the, where they're repeated and so forth. Now, let's, let's, we need to learn Jeremiah 18. Uh, it's, it's time we, we began to understand some things like this. Listen to this word, listen to this chapter. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. The word of the Lord then came to me, House of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats this clay, his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. At one moment, now this generalizes it beyond Israel itself to a principle. At one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation I have made an announcement about, and that's just what happened here, he announced it to them, turns from its evil, and that's what they did, I will not bring the disaster on it I had planned. At another time, I announce that I will build and plant a nation or a kingdom. However, if it does what is evil in my sight by not listening to my voice, I will not bring the good that I said I would do to it. So now I say to the men of Judah, to the residents of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I'm about bring, 
to bring harm to you and make plans against you. Turn now each from your evil way and correct your ways and your deeds. So, but they will say it is hopeless. We will continue to follow our plans and each of us will continue to act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And then the Lord goes on to say how he will bring judgment. Well, they didn't respond the way the Ninevites did. Now, the Ninevites um, were pretty awful people, as we discovered the last time. And uh, I have to be careful here what time we've got. So we go to uh, 11.15. Ooh. Uh, oh, we go 11.15. Yeah. All right, we'll get, we've got an hour yet. They were pretty terrible people. Skinned people alive, ran, uh, lined the, the, the roads with the skulls of the people they conquered and uh, uh, put people's eyes out and all that kind of thing. You know, all, all the things that, that we have seen happen elsewhere in the world today in certain cultures. So um, uh, they deserved it, didn't they? I mean... That's what God's saying. Yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. But God is slow to anger and he's a God of grace. He is gracious. And God wishes to show his grace at times. And presumably, like with the Ammonites, the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet full. The iniquity of Nineveh was not yet full. Not yet complete that's an interesting thing to keep in mind that God will work with a nation or with a person I assume also but certainly with a nation over a period of time until that nation has filled up the cup of wrath until the iniquity has filled up to the point where it is now running over and then comes the judgment and there won't be any relent. So we have a couple things to keep in mind here. And we have to think then that these Ninevites were not yet at the point where their iniquity had reached that point. As bad as they were, God, in his sight, must have looked upon them as a kind of people who uh, a very little understanding of the truth or anything else and... Uh, he was showing mercy and grace to them, in spite of all their sin. Any questions so far on that? Well, when we, what we read here, in four times, in the word Hebrew word shuv is, occurs, which means to turn, or it means to repent. What is repentance? Let's get clear in our thinking what repentance really is, biblically speaking. All right, we don't know what repentance is. Nobody here is saved. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody has repented. Turn away. Pardon me? Who's talking? That's part of it. To turn towards God. To turn from our sin. Pardon me? 
To turn from our sin towards God's righteousness. Yes, that's part of it. Change your mind. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, change of direction. You turn, your, your thinking changes so that you will turn in the right direction, toward, toward the right thing and away from the wrong thing, as you were pointing out. So, metanoia and shuv. Metanoia is the Greek word, New Testament, and shuv is the Old Testament word, which means to turn, the New Testament word means to change your mind. Put the two together, you have the complete picture of repentance. One of them looks at it from the result, that is, shuv looks at it from the action that is taken as a result of the change of mind. Uh, metanoia looks at repentance from the viewpoint of the initiation of repentance, namely what takes place that leads to the change of mind, namely, uh, to the change of action, namely a change of mind. So a change of action from a change of mind means, first of all, that you've got to do some thinking. You've got to do some thinking about yourself, about God, about all the things that have to do with, with repentance, namely your sin, uh, and how God you, de how you deserve to be punished by God and that you deserve this overthrow of Nineveh from, from their perspective. And that was probably what they had to think about. They probably did think about because as you see the king saying in his decree, turn from your violence and relent or, or and repent. Turn from your evil ways and from your violence. It was a violent city. They were violent people. And uh, they have many evil ways. What they all were, we probably can postulate because we know what they are in our society. And the interesting thing about our society is, is that it has become more and more violent over the over recent years. More and more violent. Um, gangs running our inner cities and uh, things of that nature that did not exist. Uh, during the time when I was growing up as a uh, young person like many of you here today, most of you here today. But uh, we, we had very tranquil cities. I remember as I was telling someone just uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, when I was about 12 years old, another kid and I, we lived in Baltimore, and Baltimore is 38 miles from uh, Washington, D.C., and we would hop the B&O rail, Railroad for, I think it was 50 cents, and you would get a round-trip ticket. Two boys, 12 years old, and we'd walk all over Washington, D.C., looking at the buildings and everything, you know, and that kind of thing. You wouldn't dare let your child do that today. You wouldn't think of it to let them even get near Washington, D.C. Uh, by themselves. Uh, maybe not even with you. Maybe you don't even want to go into the inner city. But, uh, you know, our cities are... are uh, we, we've got uh, Los Angeles full of gangs and so forth, you read about. And uh, violence. Violence going on. One gang fighting another gang. And they have their own marks that they put on the walls and they have their own, you know. We, we, have, we have a society that's growing. And... and in violence and, and movies what well 
one movie has to exceed the, uh, the last in violence some way or nobody's going to look at it. That's what it seems anyway. I don't really look at the stuff, but I see enough of, the, enough of it if I'm look, watching the news to just get a flash or two of it advertising it to get some idea. And then, man, it's all violence that they, they, they show you on the excerpts, the little clips that you, you see. So we're, we're becoming a lot like Nineveh in that respect, and uh, maybe in other respects too. Uh, maybe we're not lining the, the roads with skulls yet or skinning people alive, but uh, it could come. It could come even in our society. We don't know. Uh, but the day will come, perhaps, that the cup will be full in America. Just like the cup was eventually full in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that uh, in a little bit. But right now, are there any questions before we go on? Do you understand about, before you ask that, do you understand about the fact that God makes his judgments conditional? They are conditional on nations. Now, that doesn't mean on individuals, but on nations. When God makes a promise to you, he's going to keep that promise to you. He's not going to go back on his promise to you. He's not going to relent on his promise to you. If he says, I'm going to save you, he's going to save you. He's not going to relent on that. And we're not to take that from what we're saying. But he says, when one nation does this, is what it says in Jeremiah. When one nation does that, this is how I'm going to respond to that nation, if that nation does that or so. Any questions about that before Joe asks it? All right, Joe, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that all that Jonah says is 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Right. And all this stuff about repentance and sackcloth. And came from them. Comes from the king. Came from them, right. Yeah. Exactly. He knew what kind of place he had. Yeah, that's good. It's great. I, I find it interesting that it says that they believed or believed in God rather than the messenger. Doesn't say they believed Jonah. Yeah, doesn't say they believed Jonah. Of course they did, but uh, they, well, they believed Jonah message. was telling the truth about the true God. Evidently, yeah. somehow or other, that that came to them, and they must have had enough contact with uh, the true God over the years past, in one way or another, that they knew when a Hebrew prophet came on the scene that there was something special about it. Uh, the, the men on the boat seemed to know too about a Hebrew prophet. He, after he explained that he was the God of heaven, the God of the, earth, the water, the God of uh, everything, and uh, of the earth and everything, so that uh, there may have been that kind of knowledge in Nineveh. Should have been. Uh, these people were in charge of the, of the world in those days, and uh, so they uh, probably knew all about what was going on down in, in that uh, Hebrew province down there and what kind of beliefs they had in, in the, the God that they trusted in, yes. You notice the men on the ship prayed to Yahweh. Yes, they did. They got a whole lot more information. These people are just praying to God. Yeah. Because it, it, Nineveh, Jonah didn't say who's going to overthrow Nineveh, but they got the message. Yeah, we just don't know enough to really fully say, but they got the message. How they got it, we don't know. But somehow or other, they they knew that when this God 
of this these people with this profit from their walking through their streets and proclaiming this message they knew that that something was for real somehow they knew that there are some implications just to challenge our minds uh, for example you, you mentioned there was some awareness of Israel's God. Yeah. Enough that the, pre, the, the king could address that God in, with some confidence that they understood what that God was like and what he might do. He might repent. And it's, it tells us that the nations in that area had sufficient communication about other nations and other nations' gods. Uh, at least enough to assessed and apparently Yahweh had the reputation of being a superior God amidst all those gods. Certainly all that, certainly. Yeah. It's not it was not like like the Israelites had been a big force in the world no. at that time. Um, but it's just like when Jericho uh, and Rahab and they say, you know, yeah. the word about you guys coming here and your God has already reached us, and we're scared to death. That's right. You know, so the word had gotten out to them. There was some kind of Twitter or something back then. I don't know what it was. <laughs> the other implication is um, that, um, I had to make the joke and I re- lost the good thought. Uh, That's all right. Hang, hang in there a minute. It'll come. I'm the one supposed to have the senior moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're due for a break anyway. If you okay. Chapter, but, uh, I'm trying to think of what I'm to say. Oh, yeah, violence. What? Vi- you were comparing the violence and we're approaching yeah. that. And I, I think you're right on. The only difference of the two situations is that the Israelite nation could look upon Assyria and say yeah, violence. This is this is a violent, wicked nation. Yeah. Where the community of Americans look at all the violence in America, and the people that do the violence, there's really nothing wrong with them. They are ill. They are mentally ill. They are sick. There's no concept of it's a deliberate sin. That's right. They're all ill. That's that's but, true. But back then, no, nobody, nobody has any responsibility for anything he does. Right. But back then, Israel all believed, even if they weren't righteous, they all believed this was moral evil going right. on. Right. But not in our culture. That's right. That's certainly true. Yeah, they knew they knew what sin meant. They when they said sin, they meant sin. Yeah. <laughs>